Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we are coming to the end of the series on 1 Peter. I think two more sermons after today. And I thought it would be helpful to, to give you the, kind of the big picture once again of what's happening in 1 Peter. So let's, let's walk through so that you get the flow of thought of Peter and especially so you see where today's passage fits in the overall flow of what Peter's doing. So he starts off in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and introduces himself to his readers. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 13, he says that through Jesus, God has given us living hope which means that everyone who's trusting Christ, you have the certain hope that forever you're going to be filled with joy in knowing Jesus Christ, beholding him, worshiping him, loving him. That is your destiny forever. And it is sure and it is certain and it is alive in us as we're trusting in Christ. And so he says, set your hope fully there. Everything else might change. Everything else is shifting sand. Put your hope on that rock of the living hope. That's verses 3 through 13. Then because we have this hope, he says we are able to stop sinning, crucial passage, fervently love each other, earnestly love each other. We can live God-glorifying lives before lost people around us, both in our homes and in our workplaces and in the different countries that we're in. Live God-glorifying lives. And we're able to suffer for Christ. And that was a long passage on suffering. Chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. Now, last week, Pastor Ben preached on chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And he showed us how Peter starts kind of a, a closing, a concluding section. And he tells us that since the end will surely come, the, the end of all things is at hand, verse 7, we should be, and then there's a couple things that were mentioned in last week's passage. We should be devoted to prayer. We should love each other earnestly. We should show hospitality, both to our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as to those who don't know the Lord. Invite people into our homes for meals. Show hospitality. And use our spiritual gifts for the glory of God. And that brings us then to today's passage, where Peter continues with this idea that the, the end of, of all things is here. The end is certainly coming. So therefore, what Peter's going to tell us is that therefore, here's how we should respond when we suffer. Because the end is certain, because we have this living hope, here are four ways we should respond to suffering. Now, some of you this morning here are suffering right now. It might be health issues. It might be friendships that have brought you great hurt. It might be ongoing chronic pain. It might be debilitating depression you battle with. Maybe you were passed over for a promotion because your manager doesn't like that you're a Christian. Um, some of you are suffering right now, and I'm praying that this passage will profoundly, that God will, through this passage, profoundly meet you comfort you and strengthen you. Others of you are not going through suffering right now, but you still need this passage because it's coming. Okay? We're going to see that this morning. We should never be surprised by trials. They, they will come. So let's take a look at verses 12 through 19 to see four ways we should respond to suffering when it comes. Start with verse 12. I love this first word here, beloved. Peter loved the brothers and sisters he was writing to. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now notice that the word suffer occurs four times in these verses. So this is the theme of this passage, how we should respond to suffering. But what kinds of suffering is Peter talking about here? What kinds? It's clear that he's talking about persecution for our faith where people harm us, wrong us in some way because we're Christians. Because notice verse 14 mentions being insulted for the name of Christ. That's one kind of suffering he's talking about here. But I don't think he's talking only about persecution because verse 12 talks about fiery trials. And that's not specifically persecution. That, that's a broad general term. Nobody would think that just means persecution. So that's a broader term covering all kinds of suffering. And notice that verse 13 talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings. And, and the idea of sharing Christ's sufferings is talked about by Paul in Romans 8, and it's clear that there it's all the different kinds of sufferings that believers experience as we're living the Christian life before Jesus returns. So in this passage, Peter is talking about all the different ways we can suffer, including persecution. So it's the broad category here. So let's get tangible. Like, let's say that everybody else in your team got a, a raise in benefits except for you, and you know this because your boss doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian. That would be persecution. That would be painful to experience. Let's say that you have neighbors that are now avoiding you, and it strangely happened right after you invited them over and had a chance to share your your testimony of Jesus Christ with them, and now they're, now they're avoiding you. This is all what Peter's talking about here. Or if, if you have, have a, a, a loved one, maybe a parent who passes away, or, or your, your spouse, or a child who, who dies. That's what Peter's talking about here, suffering, suffering. Okay, it's migraine headaches. Okay, it's this whole broad range. And so the question Peter wants us to understand from this passage is how should we respond to suffering? It mentions four ways. The first one is, he says, we should not be surprised. Look again at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial 
when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Imagine that you were driving um, on a dirt road, a very rough dirt road through steep mountains up and down. Now, if that's what you were doing, you would not be surprised if you hit some bumps on the road or some ruts, you know, or some potholes. You wouldn't be surprised at all. After all, it's a rough dirt road, steep, going through the mountains. You wouldn't be surprised, right? But if you were driving on an eight-lane superhighway, brand new, just cruising along, you would be surprised, wouldn't you? If you hit some potholes, what was that? You know, or some bumps? You're not expecting bumps, ruts, potholes on an eight-lane superhighway. Too many Christians think that the Christian life is like an eight-lane superhighway on the way to heaven. 140 kilometers per hour, okay? Windows down, if it's not too hot. Maybe the top is down, right? Your hair's blowing in the breeze. Okay, you got the, got the praise music cranked up, you know? You're just, just smooth, easy, prosperous, comfortable road all the way to heaven. Too many Christians think that's what the Christian life is. But if we read the Bible honestly and carefully, we will find that that is not the case. The Christian life is like a very rough dirt road through the mountains, full of potholes, full of ruts, full of bumps. We've seen that already through First Peter. He's showed us that, that this is what the Christian life is. Let me show you another verse, though, in the book of Acts, chapter 21 and 22. I would encourage you to memorize this verse, these verses. Here Luke is describing Paul visiting churches he's already planted, and he tells us what Paul preached on at each church he'd already planted. Acts 14, 21 through 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city, city of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, these churches that had been planted, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, here's the sermon, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not an eight-lane superhighway, smooth sailing all the way to heaven. It's bumpy, potholed, rutted, bouncy, difficult road. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, why? There's lots of reasons, but, but Peter has told us one in verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, the fact that trials test us, this is a loving, kind, gracious gift from God, this test. Trials test us because as, as we go through trials trusting Jesus, we have the joy, the incredible joy of seeing our faith is real. If you've gone through a hard time and God has given you grace to, to keep trusting, to cling to his promises, to hold on, when you see things that like, this is hard, this is difficult, but I'm going to trust that you're good, I'm going to trust that you're in control, and you emerge out of that trial, you can look back and God, you've saved me. 
You've given me genuine faith. My faith is real. I've really been saved. Thank you. And that will fill you with joy. And that's one of the reasons that God allows us to go through trials is to test us so that we can see my faith is real. I've been saved. Thank you for your mercy. You enable me to trust you through that trial. Glory to your name. It's a precious, wise, loving gift from God. And so the road to heaven is full of these tests. And we can look back and say, Thank you, you gave me grace. Thank you, you helped me to trust you. Thank you, I can see you've saved me. My faith is real. Thank you. It's a great joy in that. So that's one reason God gives us trials. That's one reason trials are many on the road to heaven, and that's why we should not be surprised when we hit them. Okay, church? Let's never again be surprised when a, when a trial comes. Let's never again say, I thought God loved me. Oh, he does. He does. And he gives us gifts of trials to assure us that we're saved and that we're near to him. Second way to respond. Peter says that when suffering comes, we should rejoice in what God promises. That's verses 13 and 14. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So here Peter says, when you face sufferings, rejoice. Really, Peter? Rejoice? Now we might think, well, maybe, maybe in the Greek, that's kind of a strange secret word that doesn't really mean rejoice. I checked. Uh, the word means rejoice. Just like it sounds, okay? It means, it means rejoice. And the issue is that you know, we, we can't just choose to rejoice in trials. We can't just muster up our willpower and try our I'm, I'm going to rejoice here. That's not how feelings work. Peter's not talking about pretending. He's talking about really feeling joy in trials. So how does that happen? And the way it happens all through the Bible is that God gives us promises which when we trust them and pray over them, our hearts will change. It's not us trying to feel joy, but we, we start to see who God is and what he's doing, and the Holy Spirit uses those to, to produce joy in us. And, and there's three different promises that Peter gives in verses 13 and 14, which when we trust them will change our hearts so we respond to trials with, with joy. The first is at the beginning of verse 13, the first promise, that in our trials, we will share with Jesus. We will share a closeness with Jesus in his suffering. Now, this isn't explicit there in verse 13, but I think it's, it's implied. And I wanted to emphasize it because I think it's so important. We will have sweet fellowship with Jesus in the trials. I have never heard any saint, any believer, I've never read about any saint or believer who said that their sweetest times of fellowship with Jesus were when everything was going great. I've never heard that. I've heard many saints, many believers say that their sweetest times of fellowship with the Lord were through the hardest times. And many of you would agree with that. Let me give you an illustration. I, I used the same illustration three years ago. I looked it up, so I thought I could share it again this morning. It's, a, it's such a helpful illustration. Some of you weren't here then, obviously. And those of you who were, 
enjoy it again, but this is so powerful. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to, the, to inland China in the 1800s. He met Maria Dyer on the mission field in China, and the two were married in 1858. But 12 years later, July 23rd, 1870, Maria became ill and died. This was devastating to Hudson Taylor. It was tragic. They had an amazing marriage. But God deeply comforted him and gave him sweet fellowship with Jesus. He wrote some letters to his friends back in the UK about what God was doing in his heart. Here's some excerpts from those letters. He said to one friend, Only God knows what her absence means to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction and love fall to the lot of very few. But were the loss less, I should know less of his power and sustaining love. No language can express what Christ has been and is to me. Never, that's his italics, never does he leave me. Constantly does he cheer me with his love. He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in and with me. Hudson Taylor wept. The joy doesn't mean you don't weep. But Jesus was weeping with him. He felt that. Oh, that is sweet, sweet fellowship. Then he says this, Often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her who is in heaven to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. Wow. That's sweet fellowship. And if you trust that he will meet you in the trial and give you some of the sweetest fellowship with Jesus that you ever have, you will rejoice. Maybe with tears, that's all right, but you will rejoice because there is nothing better in the universe than heart fellowship with Jesus Christ. Nothing better. Next promise about what will enable us to rejoice is at the end of verse 13. He says, so that you may also rejoice and be glad. We rejoice so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what does that mean? When is his glory revealed? So our home group, we had different opinions on that. Okay, some in our home group thought that this was talking about heaven. His glory will be revealed in heaven. Others thought it's about Jesus' glory being revealed through us now in this life as we are rejoicing in the trials. Hmm. Both are plausible from this passage. Both are biblical. Which is it? What swayed me to think that it's heaven is the fact that there's two other places where Peter uses the words glory and revealed in the same verse, and they both apply to heaven. So I think that's what Peter's talking about here. Heaven. So here's what Peter is saying. When we suffer in this life, the more we set our hearts upon Jesus, press in to him, ask him for help, strengthen our faith, pour out your grace upon me, give me more joy in Christ. The more we set our hearts upon Christ and press into him and rejoice in Christ, 
the more joy we will have in him forever. Did you hear that? So the more we seek joy in him now and experience joy in him now through our trials, the more joy we will have in him forever. Seek it now more forever. Now, let me explain how that works. Because you are trusting Jesus in heaven, you will be filled with joy in him. Filled. No believer will have a half-filled heart, half-filled with joy in heaven. Every believer's heart will be filled with joy in heaven. Yours will be completely filled. But the more you rejoice in Jesus through trials now, the more your heart capacity for joy will increase. So let's say that you just grumble through trials in this life. Grumble through trials in your life. Well, you have maybe this much heart capacity for joy, and after grumbling through your trials, you still have about this much heart capacity for joy. Your heart will be filled with joy in Jesus forever. That much. Filled. Okay? Filled. We're all filled. But that much. Now, what if instead of grumbling your way through trials, you, you, you get down on your knees before the Lord? I'm, I'm heartbroken over this. Strengthen my faith. Help me. You open up the word. You pray over the scriptures. You have your home group pray for you. You seek his face. You, you, you meet him then. He, he will always meet you. Some sweet fellowship with the Lord. You're rejoicing. You're setting your heart upon him. As you do that, your heart capacity for joy is growing. It's growing. It's growing. Every, every trial you're, you're seeking the Lord in and rejoicing in your heart capacity for joy is growing. And so that in heaven, you, you will be filled and have an even greater capacity for joy. That's what Peter's talking about here. Trust that the more you set your heart upon Jesus Christ and rejoice in him now, the more joy you will have in him forever. That's the next promise. So, two reasons so far why we should rejoice. Because God promises this will give you sweet fellowship with Christ. That's one. And then because this will give us even more joy in him forever. But there's a third promise. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, that word blessed, there's two different Greek words for blessed. One describes being well spoken of. The other describes being happy, rejoicing. This is the word for happy, rejoicing. So he's saying, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are happy, okay? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's Peter saying? He's saying that, that if you invite a, a, a friend or at work, a work associate over to your house for dinner, hear their story about their background, what their spiritual convictions are, what that means for them, and, and that opens a door for you to share your story and to share the, the story of Jesus saving you. And, and if they respond to that by insulting you, by saying, I thought you were intelligent. I can't believe you believe that stuff, or whatever they might say. And from then on, your time at work, there's this kind of an odd distance between you. Peter says, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think what that means is that God will pour out an even fresh, filling, outpouring grace 
of the Holy Spirit making the glory of Jesus Christ real in your heart. There's, there's nothing like beholding the glory of Christ, seeing, feeling the glory of Christ. And even though things are awkward with this friend, this friend is insulting you, you will behold the glory of Christ. You will sense him smiling upon you. You will sense his favor and you will be blessed and happy and rejoicing even though this friend is insulting you. That's the promise. The spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you and that's worth any suffering in the world. Any suffering. There's a third way that Peter calls us to respond to trials. Don't be surprised, first way. Second way, rejoice for three different promises as reasons. Now here's a third way we should respond. Verses 15 through 18. When we suffer, we should not be ashamed, but we should glorify God in that name. Glorify God for the honor of, of bearing the name of Jesus. Start with verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So, so no follower of Jesus should ever suffer because you took someone's life. We should never take anyone's life, no matter how horrifyingly they've harmed you or your loved one. We never, that's, that's not our prerogative. We should never steal, no matter how needy we become, or no matter how unjust someone else has been to us. We should never be evildoers, stirring up envy or division or strife and that sort of thing, and we should never be meddlers, getting into the people's business where we don't need to, to be. All those can cause suffering, but no believer should ever suffer for those reasons. But look at what he says in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, so if you suffer for the name of Christ because of your faithfulness to Christ, because of your obedience to him, because of your speaking the gospel of who he is. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay, again, Peter's talking specifically about persecution here. We're suffering as a Christian. So when other people mock us or ridicule us or cause us harm in some way, we can feel shame, right? You can feel ashamed if other people are dishonoring you because of your faith in Christ. But Peter says we should feel no shame for following Jesus Christ. Rather, we should glorify God in that name. Praise you, Father, for the honor of bearing Christ's name. Thank you for the privilege of honoring Christ's name. Now, let me give you an illustration of a pastor who did this in the 1990s. It's very moved reading his story this week. He was born in a country where it was illegal to be a Christian. Someone shared, took the risk, shared the good news of the gospel with him. He became a follower of Christ. God gifted him, called him to be a pastor. He was sharing the gospel. People came to faith. He was pastoring a church. He knew he was risking his life to do that, and he kept faithfully shepherding and loving his people. And one day, the knock came on the door, and he was arrested. And he was brought before judges, and they asked him if he wanted to make a statement. And he made a statement that somebody surreptitiously wrote down as he was making it and smuggled it out of the courtroom and it spread throughout the church and the churches and emboldened believers throughout this country. And today, the church is growing faster in this country than any other country. Here's what he said to the judges. 
it doesn't matter if the whole world is against me. Don't you love that? It's true. It doesn't matter if the whole world is against me as long as I know that the almighty God is with me and that I have the approval of the God of glory. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter to everlasting life. Well, they convicted him, sentenced him, and killed him. And he's with Jesus. And the church got on fire when this testimony went out. And the church is growing there rapidly. That's what Peter means when he says, do not be ashamed, but glory in the honor of bearing Jesus' name before the world. Now he gives us reason, a reason why in verses 17 and 18. Look at what he says. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 17 that shows here's a reason for why. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what does it mean that judgment will begin with the household of God, with us. What does that mean? Now, this Greek word judgment has a broad range of meaning. It can mean punishment on the one end of the spectrum, but it can also, on the other end of the spectrum, mean refining or purifying, not punishing. And because you're trusting Jesus Christ, and Jesus paid for all your sins because he was punished in your place for all your sins, you, believer, will never experience God's punishing judgment. Let's be really clear there. You will never experience God's punishing judgment. But in this life, we will experience God's refining judgment, God's testing judgment, and it's a loving, gracious, wise, kind gift from God him. But now if God's judgment starts with believers as refining judgment, what will happen to those who are not trusting Christ, who are not believers? At the end of history, when Jesus comes back, they will face and receive God's punishing judgment forever. That's the point Peter wants to make. And then he, he puts it in verse 18, different words. He's quoting an Old Testament proverb. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I, I don't think that that word scarcely is the best translation here. You do your study on this. A um, couple of reasons. One is other very reputable, accurate versions, the Christian Standard Bible and the New American Standard Bible translate it with difficulty. And the idea of us being saved barely or scarcely sounds like we're, like we're just barely saved, but that is not at all the case. The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are fully saved, completely saved, 
All your sins are forgiven. All of them. God changes your heart. He starts a work in you that he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. He will keep you on the road to heaven all the way to the end. What, what, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You aren't scarcely saved. You are lavishly saved, but you're saved with difficulty because there is suffering. There is refining. There is purifying. Oh, there's tears on the road to heaven. There is holy grief on the road to heaven and great joy. So that's what Peter's talking about here. That's what he's describing. So why should we feel no shame before unbelievers? Why should we instead praise God for the honor of bearing the name of Christ? First of all, it's because compared to God's opinion, their opinion does not matter. It does not matter. God is the one who matters. And he's smiling upon you. And it's because the day is coming when those who don't obey Christ will be punished forever. So don't worry about their opinions now. Honor God. Honor Christ. Don't be ashamed. Thank him for the honor of bearing his name. Those who aren't obeying Christ, those who don't trust Christ, are going to face God's judgment forever. So love them. Pray for them. Weep for them. Take the risk and share the gospel with them. But don't be ashamed of them. Don't be ashamed before them. Put your hope in God. God is smiling upon you. And eternity is coming. His favor will rest upon you. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's all that will matter. It's all that's going to matter. Okay, one more response. Okay, moving along rapidly here. We should trust our lives to the faithful creator. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering according to God's will here means not suffering as murderers or thieves or trouble, troublemakers. It means we're suffering on the road of obedience to Christ. It could be persecution, it could be sickness, it could be financial stress, emotional pain, whatever, but it's suffering according to God's will, not because we've sinned, but because we're obeying him. That's what he's talking about. And when we suffer in that way, we should trust our lives to God. We should, we should trust God for our lives. I trust you. And notice Peter describes God as faithful creator. Why those two words? Why creator? I thought it's because maybe, I mean, God's creation is one of the most powerful displays of his power that there is. There was nothing. Then he said, let there be, and there was a universe with his words alone. So it's a display of God's power. And so when we suffer, no matter what it is, stubbing our toe or being persecuted or traffic jam or whatever it might be, when we suffer, understand God has infinite power. Trust God's infinite power. He has power over all your suffering. He could have kept that suffering from happening, but in his love and wisdom, he chose to allow that to happen. So trust him. Ask him to remove it. He has power. Ask him. Remove the suffering and trust him for every day he chooses 
not to remove it because it's another day of his love being expressed to you through that suffering. Now, why does Peter emphasize that God is faithful? We got his create, his creator, which is his power. He's faithful, which means he's faithful to his promises. So as you're suffering on the path of obedience, trust his power and trust his faithfulness to his promises. He will be faithful to all of his promises. He will give you all the grace you need for suffering. All the strength you need, he'll give it to you. All the wisdom you need with decisions that need to be made, he'll give the wisdom to you. The financial provision you need, he'll give that to you. He's promised. He'll give you everything that you need. And and most important, he will satisfy your heart in himself through the suffering. Yes, there may be tears. There will be tears. But oh, he'll be there. And his nearness will make it worth it all. Trust your life to him as you suffer. Now let me show you how Peter puts this in one of the last verses of this book. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I want to give you a taste of this now so that you can start to enjoy this verse now as we move to the end of the book. A powerful promise that we can trust our faithful creator to fulfill. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. Remember back in chapter 1, if we're distressed by various trials for a little while, little while is this earth, this, this life on earth. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's where we're going. He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We're going to be there, church. This is our destiny. There's the living hope trumpeted again. So after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. He will do this himself. The God of the universe will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Grace Church, God is your faithful creator. As you suffer, trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Let's stand together and pray. God, I pray that you would Especially, Lord, touch those right now who are suffering. Oh, Lord, we love our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would pour your grace out upon them, that you'd use the promises, the truths in this passage to fill them, Lord, right now, to strengthen them right now, meet them right now, help them to respond, not with surprise, but with with joy because of the beautiful, sweet fellowship with Jesus you hold out to them. Help them, Lord, to not be ashamed if they're going through any persecution, but to praise you for the honor of bearing the name of Christ in this part of the world. And Lord, for those who are struggling to trust you, strengthen their faith right now. And I pray that you'd use this passage to shape all of our understanding, all of our theology, our doctrine of suffering and trial so that we will be strong when they come. We will 
not be surprised. We will know what your love and plan and purpose is. So we praise you for your faithfulness to us. We love you, Lord God. Let's worship.